Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and today we're joined by Professor Jessica Elkind at San Francisco State University to discuss her book, Aid Under Fire, Nation Building in the Vietnam War, published by the University of Kentucky Press in 2016. The book examines an understudied component of the American buildup of the Vietnam War, which was the attempt to create a viable South Vietnamese state through development and aid, and the legacy of how that aid pushed the United States into war in Southeast Asia. The book was written using archival sources in Vietnam, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and papers of aid workers or private groups who went to South Vietnam. In today's interview, we will discuss the, what the plans for development in South Vietnam looked like and how those plans ultimately ran into unexpected difficulties or failed. In doing so, we can gain a greater understanding of the path to war. Dr. Elkind, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, and how you came to write this book. Okay. Hi, Seb. Thank you for having me. So I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I did my undergraduate at Brown University. I studied history there. And then I went on to UCLA and got my Ph.D. in history at UCLA and I now teach at San Francisco State University. I've been teaching there for about 10 years, and I teach courses on U.S. involvement in Vietnam, but also U.S. involvement in the world, and also Southeast Asian history, too. This project, is this something that started for you in graduate school? Yes, this this book project grew out of my dissertation. So just out of curiosity, what did it look like in dissertation form? Is it broadly similar? Yes, it is broadly similar. Uh, The organization of the dissertation and the book are are pretty close. I expanded on the introduction a lot in the book. It's It's quite a long introduction, but it seemed to me that there was a lot of context and background that was important. To, to provide to readers in the introduction. I also did some additional research after I finished the dissertation and included more material on the on USAM, the United States Operation Mission in Vietnam, which was the in-country government aid agency. So there was some additional material that I added to the book. So I was a little bit curious about, you did, you carried out research in, um, Vietnam, looking at the papers of the president, which would have been No Din Diem. Yes? Yes. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what was the process like? How did you do it? What did you find? Okay, so it was a really interesting experience. And I was fortunate to have uh, been able to study Vietnamese language, both at UCLA when I was in graduate school, and then I did an advanced summer program in Hanoi during graduate school. So I was, and that was part of why I wanted to go to UCLA so that I would be able to study Vietnamese language, but also take classes in Vietnamese and Southeast Asian history. I was also fortunate to not be the first American scholar getting into the Vietnamese archives, which were really open to foreign scholars relatively recently. 
And um, I, it, it was not always easy. I didn't spend a huge amount of time in the archives in Ho Chi Minh City in Saigon, which is where the materials that I was looking at were housed. Um, but I, one of the things that struck me was the fact that I was not always able to look at the documents that I wanted to look at. There was a pretty strict and controlled process for getting to see certain documents. And I don't know if this is true of local researchers, but at least foreign researchers had to basically explain or justify how particular documents were relevant or related to the project uh, that they were working on. So some of the things that I wanted to look at, I actually was not able to look at. Um, not everything was equally useful. My reading ability in Vietnamese is decent, but I'm not a super fast reader. And so I uh, was able to hire a couple of local students who helped mainly go through finding aids because they could just go through them so much more quickly than I could. Um, so in the end, I think that the the materials that I, the Vietnamese materials that I was able to look at certainly added something to the project and to the book. I would have ideally liked to have found even more relevant materials than I did. Uh, but I, but hopefully I at least was able to include some Vietnamese perspectives as a result of that research. What led you to this project? Well, I... I originally was not a history major as an undergrad. I was studying chemistry for the first two years uh, that I was in college, but I took a few history courses with some really great professors at Brown, including Gordon Wood, who's a very well-known scholar of early U.S., early American history. And then also I took a class my sophomore year with Charles New, who's a diplomatic historian and taught a very popular class, which had been recommended by a number of my friends on U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And I, I really loved the history classes that I was taking and decided that I wanted to take more and more history and uh, switch my major to history. And I took several other classes on the Cold War um, and other topics related to U.S. and the world with Professor New. And I loved all of those classes. But one of the things that I was frustrated by, especially with the Vietnam class, was that it, the it was pretty traditional the way that he taught the class, diplomatic and military history. And everything was presented from the American perspective and American side. And I felt like there was a whole missing dimension of the story and of that history. And so when I decided to go to graduate school, I knew I wanted to go someplace where I could learn more about Vietnamese history. And UCLA was a very good fit for me because there was a strong Southeast Asian studies program there and foreign language opportunities in, in Southeast Asian languages, including Vietnamese. Uh, so I, I knew I wanted to do a topic uh, for my dissertation, even when I entered grad school related to U.S. involvement in Vietnam. But then I also became more interested in social history as a graduate student, partially you know related to some of the historians I worked with at UCLA and classes I took. And I became more interested in 
the kind of dynamics on the ground in Vietnam during the war and in the non-military aspects of U.S. intervention. And so that's how I became interested in nation building and development projects. So let's move on to the book, which is Eight Under Fire, Nation Building in the Vietnam War. Tell us what this book's about. Okay, so the book considers the first 10 years, really, of uh, serious U.S. involvement in Vietnam from 19, late 1954 or so until 1965, uh, which was the year that ground troops began arriving in Vietnam and the American War, as it's called in Vietnam, really started. And my focus is on civilian aid workers who were in Vietnam often for relatively long periods of time, for at least a year, in a lot of cases, two years or longer, who were working with Vietnamese, whether they were Vietnamese officials in the South Vietnamese government or local administrators or local people, um, and doing modernization, development, kind of nation-building work. So the book... Uh, considers a number of different development programs. I look at uh, advisors, American advisors who were in the field of public administration, also police administration trying to modernize law enforcement in South Vietnam. But I also focus on agricultural aid workers and aid workers who are involved in education and teaching in South Vietnam. So I, I'm trying to give a kind of broad picture of this nation-building effort. Okay. Let's go through the book. Um, the first chapter, Virgin Mary is Going South. What is that about? What, what, is, what program is that referring to? And what the future significance of it? Okay. So Vietnam was divided um, along the 17th parallel, it was supposed to be a temporary partition of the country in two halves at the end of the war between the French and the Viet Minh, often referred to as the First Indochina War, in 1954. And the idea was that the country would be temporarily partitioned, there would be national elections within two years, and reunification. Um, but that this would kind of give an opportunity for uh, Vietnamese combatants who had been fighting in that war to go home, for various political organizations to to kind of organize in, in advance of those elections. And what I explore in that chapter is the movement and resettlement efforts to resettle nearly a million people who moved in late 1954 in the months following partition and throughout the year of 1955 from North Vietnam to the South. And many of those people were Catholics, though some of them were not. Were, they were Buddhist, as the majority of the population in Vietnam was. Uh, but many of those people were moving because they were concerned about their future, their um, ability to support their families and, and make a living, to their ability to practice their religion in some cases, their kind of political future in the North, which at that point was uh, had a communist government under the leadership of the Vietnam Workers' Party, the Communist Party in Vietnam. 
And this movement of people depended on foreign assistance. Uh, it was American, French, other foreign powers that provided ships, in some cases aircraft, to help people who wanted to leave the North to go South during this period. The Southern government, President Ngo Dinh Diem's government in South Vietnam, supported this this uh, influx of refugees, at least in part, because they were hopeful that this would be a kind of automatic group of uh, supporters for the government, that there would be political implications. And so they actively tried to resettle many of those uh, northern refugees or migrants in the South um, in hopes that they would become a kind of loyal base, political base for the Southern government. And so some of the first efforts in which American aid workers were involved were related to, to resettling those people. And one of the arguments that I make in the chapter is that there, although there were a lot of challenges associated with, with quickly resettling the, the northern refugees, that um, there were also a lot of success stories and that both the aid workers, but also American officials and even South Vietnamese officials came away from that experience with, with a sense of confidence. And that is confidence in the South Vietnamese government, but also in the effectiveness of American aid programs and, and what they could do. And I think that that what I call misplaced optimism or confidence had a really important implication going forward and made many American officials believe that their kind of vision for how to help the South Vietnamese state and how to uh, administer technical assistance, development assistance in South Vietnam might be effective. Now, there's a figure who comes up a lot in this in this chapter, Edward Lansdale. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. So Edward Lansdale was a CIA operative, CIA agent. Um, at the time, at this time, in the mid-1950s, he was a member of the Saigon military mission, um, which was a small group of military and intelligence officers based in Saigon who were working with this new government, um, which was originally the state of Vietnam and then later became the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam. And Lansdale had already had experience uh, working in, um, South, in Southeast Asia. He had been actively involved in working with uh, Filipino officials during the Huck Rebellion in the Philippines a few years earlier, had was seen as somebody who had helped defeat a communist insurgency in the Philippines and um, kind of knew how to, to get things done. And he later claimed credit for this massive propaganda effort to encourage and inspire North Vietnamese people to leave and come South. Um, he took credit for that slogan, the Virgin Mary is going South, which was part of a, a larger kind of black propaganda or fear campaign trying to uh, encourage Catholics, especially people who had some experience in public administration or, or, you know, as civil servants to come South and support this new government in Saigon. 
Um, but it's not clear that actually that um, Edward Lansdale or other intelligence or uh, information people at the U.S. Information Agency that actually they were tremendously significant in terms of motivating people to leave the North. Um, but but nevertheless, he was he was one of these kind of important American figures at at that moment, and also was very supportive of. Noden Ziem and the Ziem's government in Saigon. Let's move on to chapter two, which is about civil servants and cold warriors. Sort of a, a funny juxtaposition. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, so the way the book is organized is is kind of by different type of aid program. So, uh, this chapter focuses on efforts in public administration to develop public administration in South Vietnam. And uh, here, I'm mostly focused on the work of of USAM, the U.S. Operations Mission, which I talked about a few minutes ago, and also a group of uh, scholars in the social sciences from Michigan State University. Michigan State had a partnership, a contract with the South Vietnamese government to provide assistance in two fields, in public administration and police administration. And so in this chapter, I look at a number of different efforts to basically try to train a core of civil servants to work both at for the central government in Saigon, but also at the provincial level around the country, around South Vietnam, um, to try to bolster the state and basically take state services out into the countryside, which is where most people in Vietnam lived at the time. And so I look at a number of different initiatives. One of the one of the things that I focus on in this chapter are the Michigan State team's efforts to try to develop and modernize a new school to train civil servants. And this was the National Institute of Administration in, in Saigon. But I also look at a lecture series. I consider some of the research projects that the Michigan State folks conducted. And I, I talk a lot in this chapter about tensions between South Vietnamese officials and these American advisors with whom they were working, whether they were from USAM or Michigan State University. And their different ideas about good governance and their ideas about uh, acceptable opposition to particular government policies and academic freedom, um, which I think some of those differences, which were cultural but also political, uh, were, were really important in terms of limiting the effectiveness of these American efforts. Tell me a little bit more about those tensions. So you have the American and private advisors sort of on one side, and you have South Vietnamese officials on the other. What does the split look like? Where, in which directions are they sort of diverging? That's a good question. So, and and it was not always uh, it wasn't always this kind of same issues. Um, one of the things that it was very became very clear to me was that both South Vietnamese officials in the government, but also even colleagues at the National Institute of Administration, Vietnamese professors and faculty there. 
um, had their own ideas about uh, about what you know the school curriculum should look like, for example, or about um, how how the government should function, how the budget office, for example, should should be run and oversee uh, the budget, the state budget. But they also, the Vietnamese were also very interested, probably not surprisingly, in kind of protecting their autonomy and not, not didn't always listen to American advice and in some cases actually rejected it. So that was one kind of level of tension, particularly at the National Institute of Administration itself. There were a lot of debates about what the classroom experience should be like. Many of the Vietnamese instructors were used to a more kind of formal setting in which the students didn't ask questions um, and were not, didn't participate. They, they instead listened to formal lectures, whereas a lot of the Michigan State professors t- were trying to implement um, you know, more dialogue and engagement in the classroom and, and also different types of, of courses. So that was one level of tension or disagreements. There was another level which occurred as some of the American scholars, and, and I should probably clarify, I mentioned that these were social scientists, but the Michigan State Public Administration team included people from a lot of fields and disciplines, um, including economics, psychology, anthropology. So they were mostly people working in the kind of behavioral social sciences. And many of them became engaged in research projects while they were in Vietnam. They studied uh, village or district um, political dynamics and governance at the province and local levels. And some of the reports that they wrote based on their research were critical of the South Vietnamese government and especially of uh, ZM's kind of inner circle and and some of his his policies, his government's policies, and ZM had from the beginning of his political tenure been highly suspicious of any kind of dissent. He didn't tolerate opposition. I think didn't didn't really believe in loyal the idea that there could be loyal opposition and tried to silence anyone who disagreed with him and this was you know part of the nature of the kind of authoritarian state that he uh, put into place in South Vietnam so um, when he learned about some of these reports that that were coming out of the Michigan State group he was furious, tried to muzzle the professors, tried to put restrictions on where they could travel in the country to do research, um, you know, tried to encourage the program to send some of them back to the U.S. And there, so there developed a kind of contest over basic academic freedom and, and what, you know, what people could publish who were in Vietnam. So that was another aspect of, of the tension. Wonderful. And I just had one quick question about Michigan State. You know, this is an interesting example of, of a private entity becoming um, involved in a U.S. government program. How did that partnership come about? Sure. So one of the major themes of the book is about the role of non-state actors, because some of the aid workers that I'm studying were 
you know, government, uh, government employees, that is the, the USOM people in particular. But uh, Michigan State and the other program that I really focus on, which is the international voluntary services, those people were really non-state actors. But I argue that they were critical in terms of actually implementing the broader modernization and nation building program of the U.S. And the Michigan State story is a really interesting one. It has to, it mainly has to do with the personal relationship between a political science professor, political scientist at MSU named Wesley Fischel and President Ziem himself. The two met a few years before Michigan State got the contract with South Vietnam and before Ziem was president, they were both in Japan. Ziem was living in, in Japan in exile at the time and Fischl was doing field work for a research project he was involved in, in Japan. And the two met, um, they were both really ambitious people and, um, and kind of supported each other's ambitions and, and Fischl encouraged ZM to think about hiring uh, a university program to help him in areas like public administration um, and also police administration. And MSU, Michigan State, was not the only university group that was active in South Vietnam at the time, but it was the largest and, and most significant and also was there the longest. The MSU group was active in South Vietnam from 1955 until 1962. Uh, so, so that's the reason that I focused on that group in particular. But one of the things that's interesting about that personal relationship between Fischl and ZM is that in a way, I think it represents a shift that occurred for a lot of the aid workers. Um, and that is that even though Fischl and ZM um, saw eye to eye on a lot of things early on and Fischl really supported ZM's political ambitions, over time, he be, Fischl became disillusioned to a certain degree with, with ZM and concerned about um, the counterproductive effects of many of the South Vietnamese government's policies, restrictions, for example, on speech um, and kind of anti-democratic or undemocratic policies. And uh, Fischl started questioning those as time went on and actually went from being one of ZM's closest American advisors to someone who ZM even refused uh, towards the end of his presidency to, to see on some occasions when Fischl had requested a meeting with, with CM. And I, I think in a way that's representative of a shift that happened for a lot of aid workers who initially were very optimistic and enthusiastic about what they could accomplish in South Vietnam. But uh, the more they learned, the more time they spent in South Vietnam, I think many of them became uh, more and more concerned about what the U.S., was was doing there. And what were these aid workers like? I, I'm interested in that transformation, that, that idealism to that sort of maybe pessimism, cynicism is the right word. But do you get a sense of, uh, was there a personality type who was approaching this work? There, the aid workers, at least the ones that I focused on and looked at, were a very diverse group. 
Um, so they were mostly men, although there were some women aid workers, especially uh, within the International Voluntary Service Services Group, the IVS. Uh, so there were there were men and women involved. Um, the they they I would say they all bought into the the kind of basic assumption about why the United States was aiding. Uh, the South Vietnamese government, and the the basic necessity, really, of preventing uh, reunification in Vietnam under a communist government, or in other words, they they all were trying to support uh, the the survival of a separate non communist state in South Vietnam. And so to a certain degree, I think all of these aid workers bought into the, the broad contours of American efforts in South Vietnam. But, but then if you look a little deeper, um, I, the aid workers were motivated by, by a lot of different things. Some of them, especially those who were working on more grassroots level type projects, especially I would say those involved in agricultural development work, who were doing, you know, providing kind of person-to-person assistance in rural parts of the country. Many of those people, you know, had kind of altruistic tendencies, thought that they could help improve other people's lives and, you know, were motivated by a sense of trying to do good in the world. Um, and, and so I think they didn't have the same type of political goals necessarily as maybe some of the folks from MSU or USOM who were trying to build up the state or uh, South Vietnamese police forces. There were others, especially again in IVS, who were motivated by um, religious conviction. They, they either were uh, interested in they weren't actually missionaries. IBS prohibited their volunteers from proselytizing, but many of the volunteers uh, came out of a kind of missionary tradition or service-oriented tradition, and and so that that was another motivating factor. So there there was a kind of range, um, and of course at a high, at the high level, these programs were not designed, you know, purely to help Vietnamese people. They were intended to satisfy American interests and geopolitical goals. But I think a lot of the individuals involved, the aid workers themselves, were, you know, motivated by for more by more realistic um, goals. Great. I want to move on to our third chapter, and I think this is a really important one because this, this chapter, the third chapter, focuses on agricultural aid, which in a country like South Vietnam, which is so overwhelmingly agricultural and rural um, in this particular period, those, those programs, I would imagine, would have been central to U.S. programs. Tell me what that looked like and tell me how those played out on the ground. Sure. So you're, you're right that those were central partly because of the sheer number of people uh, living in the countryside, depending on agriculture and um, even, you know, subsistence farming, but also for political reasons too, because one of the things that the Viet Minh earlier and the North Vietnamese government and even some of the 
uh, groups like the National Liberation Front in South Vietnam promised, which were very appealing to um, large segments of the Vietnamese population, was meaningful land reform and some you know, redistribution of land and property. Uh, and one of the legacies of the French colonial period was that there a huge amount of the land in South Vietnam especially was controlled or owned by a tiny percentage of the population. And so many people were tenant farmers. They were, you know, had to, could barely make ends meet to support their families. And so there was a real demand um, for some land, meaningful land reform. And I think American policymakers saw land reform programs in this period as um, kind of always uh, communist and or communist inspired. And so they believed that the introduction of mechanized agriculture, increased agricultural production could serve as a kind of alternative to the, you know, communist land reform programs. And so, the, so there certainly was a political aspect as well as, as a basic kind of economic um, raising standard of living. And this, the United States was engaged in agricultural development programs in other parts of the world as well during this period. Nick Cullither has written a lot about this and talks about um, India in particular so so this South Vietnam was not an outlier in this way. And also there had been a transformation in agriculture and agricultural production that had occurred earlier in the 20th century and actually beginning in the late 19th century in the United States itself. And so a lot of the kind of lessons and models and techniques that these aid workers in Vietnam were trying to apply to, to South Vietnamese rural society um, or things that you know had had they had learned in the United States and seemed to be working in the United States and and lifting up rural communities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then how are how are they received? Is my other question too. Okay. Okay. Good. So they. I mean, there's there's not a single answer to this because there there are many many examples of interactions between American agricultural advisors or aid workers and local people, local communities. Um, But if I were to generalize, I would say that on the whole, Vietnamese uh, seemed very happy to receive technical assistance or money or, you know, new agricultural implements, but they did not always use them in the way that the Americans expected. And so I can give an example of that. This is something I talk about in this chapter. Um, there, there was a program that was trying to encourage Vietnamese farmers to raise livestock and specifically pigs. And so it, partially um, for, for export to, to sell um, the meat. And so uh some of the local people who participated in this program would be given pigs, but then they would also be given materials to build pig styes. And in a lot of cases, what the aid workers found is that people gladly accepted 
those those items, but then they would use the materials not to build a pigsty, but maybe to shore up some part of their house or for some other construction project that that seemed more important um, or you know that met their own needs or interests. Uh, similarly, many of the people who participated in this pig program didn't actually want to sell the pigs, so they weren't as focused on. Um, the the opportunity to kind of make money, but instead they kept and raised the pigs and j- used them within their own communities. So the point of that example, and, and one of the larger points I'm trying to make in the chapter, is that there were a lot of kind of unintended consequences, and also that the people, the recipients of American aid, had their own idea about how they should use resources or materials or money, things that they saw as, as better suited um, for their own needs. One other issue that, that's important here is that part of the goal of these, of really of all of these nation building and development projects, but all, in this case of, of the agricultural projects, is that American officials and aid workers as well believed that if if they could help improve people's standard of living, the pe- people might Vietnamese people might feel um, more loyal to the South Vietnamese government, and that the, the state was looking out for their best interests, and that Americans and their own government were trying to help them and improve their lives. But that, that's not always what happened, and there was not that kind of direct translation. Um, a lot of, there are a lot of stories in the letters that I read written by IBS volunteers of kind of individual success stories and um, individual families or even communities producing more or benefiting from agricultural development efforts, but that didn't translate really into more popular support for the government in Saigon. And in fact, one of the things that made it very difficult, especially as time went on by the late 1950s, early 1960s, for agricultural aid workers was that there was uh, increasing tension in the countryside and fighting by the late 50s and the growing uh, anti-government insurgency, which ultimately coalesced under the National Liberation Front by the end of 1960, um, really the the insurgency and the fighting made it dangerous for those American aid workers to reach some of the poorest parts of the country, but also some of the most kind of politically important areas of the country. And then your fourth chapter, which is about a different topic policing. What what were Americans trying to achieve here and how did it play out? So I think in this case, this is the clearest example perhaps of where um, American kind of counterinsurgency and military efforts intersected with nation building. Um, the American American police advisors were trying to help the South Vietnamese state modernize and develop its police forces. And there was a very close association between military assistance. At the time, the U.S. was providing a significant amount of 
military assistance. In fact, that's what most aid money was going to provide weapons, um, mainly small arms and ammunition, but also jeeps and other other types of um, of military aid. And there was a close connection between that military assistance and assistance for law enforcement organizations in South Vietnam to, who were charged with keeping the peace and providing internal security. And of course, this, again, with the increasing anti-government violence by the late 1950s became a more and more pressing problem as time went on for the South Vietnamese government. But again, here we see, and it was Michigan, it was the same Michigan state group, I mean, different individuals, but it was the broader Michigan state team that was primarily involved in these efforts to develop the law enforcement organizations in South Vietnam. And again, we see a lot of differences in the way that the Vietnamese officials and the American advisors conceived of the role of police in society. Again, some of this is cultural, some of it historical, um, but a lot of it had to do with their own interests. The Americans were interested in improving kind of public relations and community police relationships. They were also focused on um, modernizing like the fingerprint system in South Vietnam, for example, whereas the Vietnamese officials were much more focused on security and kind of shoring up um, security operations. They the ZM, the kind of inner circle of advisors to ZM and and the president himself preferred a, a kind of paramilitary model for some of the law enforcement organizations in the country, partially as a counter to the South Vietnamese army. ZM was concerned that uh, the South Vietnamese army might actually at some point challenge him. In fact, there were a couple of coup efforts or plans even before the 1963 coup, which resulted in ZM's overthrow and ultimately murder as well, or assassination. Um, and, and he was always worried about the power of the army. And so he was interested personally in kind of building up an, an alternative. And so he he focused on having a kind of paramilitary type of uh, law enforcement, at least for some of the, the organizations in the country. And the Americans really disagreed with him about that. That's interesting. There was a point raised in the chapter about instruction in English. And this, this really interested me that there was this fixation by the Americans on, on instruction in English. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So there were, there were really a lot of practical reasons for why American aid workers and officials too emphasize the importance of English language instruction, both um, within the context of police administration and, and development of, of law enforcement organizations, but also, and I talk about this in the next chapter as well, when I deal with educational development efforts um, among, you know, kind of teachers and education specialists too. And that the the practical reason was that there were more and more Americans, military advisors um, and civilians in the country as, as the 1950s went on into the early 1960s. And so it was becoming, it seemed to, it was becoming more and more important for Vietnamese 
to be able to communicate, Vietnamese people to be able to communicate with them. One of the other things that the Michigan State Group did was to provide opportunities for Vietnamese civil servants or uh, police administrators to travel overseas for training. So they emphasized English language instruction so that those people could come, you know, participate in training programs in the United States. And uh, yeah, so I think there, you know, it was really practical, kind of practical reasons. And, and, and I guess the other thing that's worth saying is that uh, many of the aid workers, not all of them, but many of the aid workers and nearly all of the officials, U.S. officials who were living in Saigon or other parts of the country did not speak Vietnamese. So there was an expectation that um, the, the Vietnamese should learn English to communicate with them. Now, now that we've teased your fifth chapter, there's no reason to sort of withhold. The last one is on educational development. And tell us about that. Sure. So this chapter also focuses primarily on USAM and then on IVS, the International Voluntary Services. Um, and, and IVS, the, the educational development programs uh, were begun actually even before the United States had official uh, aid programs to Vietnam. So in the early 1950s, IBS didn't become involved in providing educational development work or support until the early 1960s. So that was a little bit later. But um, here there was an effort to, uh, to, again, to try to incorporate more people within the Vietnamese population into civil society. There were political um, goals to, to try to inspire loyalty. I call the chapter teaching loyalty, inspire loyalty to the government by providing more opportunities for education. And the, I think basic American philosophy or assumption was that having a more educated population um, was necessary for having a democratic political system and for having a modern uh, society. And the Americans who were involved in educational development programs were part of a longer legacy of U.S. efforts to uh, in the field of education in other areas. And I trace this to a certain degree in the book. Um, I think the many of these people we can see them as um, following in the footsteps of Americans who were involved in teaching or educational development in the Philippines earlier in the 20th century, in Native American communities within the U.S. in the late 19th and actually up until the mid 20th century. One of the aid workers that I, who I profile in this chapter actually had previously worked um, as a teacher on the Navajo reservation in Arizona, and because of those experiences, was was interested in continuing that type of work overseas. So there was a I, I see a through line in these in these efforts, and education has um, is something that a lot of scholars have looked at as part of imperial projects in other places of the world as well. And the aid workers in Vietnam were teaching all sorts of things. There was a heavy emphasis, as you've already pointed out, on English language instruction, but they were also teaching um, science, they were teaching home economics, and uh, many other subjects as well. 
So we've, we've gone through these five different aid programs, and I'd like to talk a little bit about your conclusion now. What, what does this lead us to? We have these programs, they run, you know, in your narrative, you're studying them from 1954, 1955, 1965. What's, what's the end point here? Well, so so the end point, as as I see it, and and by the way, some of these types of programs continued on even after 1965. The Michigan State Group was no longer involved in South Vietnam after 1962. IVS remained in in active in Vietnam um, for a few more years after the ground war started. But but I, you know, really chose to kind of end the study more or less at 1965 because. I see part of the argument that I'm making is that the failure of these nation building efforts collectively, um, the failure of those led directly to the war. And what I mean by that is that because uh, American aid workers and officials weren't able to successfully um, legitimize the South Vietnamese state in the eyes of many people, in the South, they weren't able to help the South Vietnamese uh, armed forces and police forces put down the anti-government insurgency. Um, because of those failures, American policymakers believed that they had to send American uh, ground forces in order to to try to salvage the South, save the South Vietnamese state, and also. Um, to get something out of this very heavy investment that they had made to to South Vietnam over the previous decade. So I, and I also make an argument about, although I don't go into detail about the, the war years, but ab- about um, that many of the, the fact that many of the same mistakes that Americans made in terms of uh, their ignorance about the political dynamics in Vietnam, about Vietnamese history and culture, the legacy of colonialism, that those same mistakes which really hampered nation building and development efforts also uh, also contributed to the the military failure as well um, and the inability of American and South Vietnamese forces really to to win that war against the North Vietnamese and the NLF. I have one last question about this book. Um, I feel like in, in narratives I've encountered about um, Vietnam War and the prelude to the war, one thing that, that uh, historians, journalists will return to repeatedly is the corruption of the South Vietnamese government. But that, I didn't feel like, showed up as strongly um, in your narrative. Is that because aid workers weren't talking about it? Or did you see a different set of issues going on here? Okay, so that's a really good question. I certainly don't want to suggest that there was not corruption, even endemic corruption within uh, the South Vietnamese government, within particular agencies of the state. Um, Certainly, there's been good work done on corruption within the ARVIN, the South Vietnamese army. But I, yeah, you're right that I don't talk about corruption a lot in this book. Um, What the the dynamic that I saw more clearly in the sources that I was looking at, which were many, many of which were produced by the aid workers themselves. They were um, reports, letters, memos that the aid workers wrote at the time that when they were there was not so much that 
local officials, for example, were skimming off the top necessarily of, uh, you know, of, of funding package that, that came to their community, but instead that they were, they were using technical advice. They were using material support and aid for their own purposes or their, to satisfy their own needs and interests. And, um, and, and so I see that not really as corruption, but just as the result of different visions for how Vietnam should modernize different sets of values in some cases, um, and also different understandings about what, what people actually needed or the purposes of aid. So I saw that as being a more kind of significant dynamic than the issue of, of just simple corruption. Um, the other related uh, issue that I saw and that I talk about quite a bit in the book is that um, certainly a lot of Americans commented at the time and scholars have since on nepotism within the South Vietnamese state, especially during the ZM years. Uh, ZM relied very heavily on other family members, especially his brother, Mo Dinh Nhu, who was his most important political advisor, um, but also other, you know, kind of friends of the family within his government. But, um, and, and so, you know, maybe that some people would describe that as corruption or a tendency to corruption. But what I saw as a bigger issue and something that the aid workers themselves commented on and were frustrated by um, the authoritarian aspects of the government and the really repressive, in some cases, harsh and draconian policies of the state. And corruption seemed to be a kind of less significant issue, both in terms of limiting um, the effectiveness of aid programs, but also in terms of uh, not building popular support, not winning hearts and minds um, to the South Vietnamese government. So we're nearly at the end of our hour, and you have been very generous in giving us this time. I just wanted to ask one last question. What are you working on now? Sure. So I have decided to stay within Southeast Asia. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on a book project that considers American aid and intervention in Cambodia during the 1970s. There's there's a lot of good scholarship, or relatively a lot of good scholarship, on the Khmer Rouge period from 1975 to late 78, 79. Um, some other good scholarship on uh, the kind of expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia earlier in the decade. But there's no... No, no existing scholarship that kind of traces the arc of the whole decade and um, looks at it really treats it in a broader context beyond either the genocide in the second half of the decade or a kind of extension of the Vietnam War earlier in the decade. And what I'm trying to do is explore this arc of American involvement over the course of that decade, really starting in the late 1960s, actually, um, and tease out some what I see as some other really important aspects of it, um, specifically related to the kind of triangular relationship among the United States, the Cambodian government, and the Chinese government. China was one of the most important 
patrons of Cambodia, um, but then also thinking about the way in which ideas about human rights informed or didn't inform um, U.S. policy and aid, including humanitarian assistance to Cambodian refugees during the during the Khmer Rouge period later. That sounds very, very interesting and, and a necessary addition to the historiography, I think. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Elkind. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We've been here today with Jessica Elkind on the History Channel of the New Books Network, talking about her book, Aid Under Fire, Nation Building in the Vietnam War, published by the University of Kentucky Press in 2016.